Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you and Lord, as we come here and we gather, we don't need to hear the speech, some speech a guy wrote. We don't need to hear a monologue, some ideas from a man's head. Lord, we need to hear from you, the living God. We need to hear you speaking to our souls, and that's what we get here, Lord. As your word is preached, and you send your spirit to make it real to our hearts, we are really hearing from you in our souls through your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would do that. We pray, Lord, that you speak to us. Lord, make our hearts right for that. Uh, What kind of a heart should we have if we know we're about to hear from the living God, Lord? Uh, Give us that kind of a heart. Give us good soil for the gospel. Give us hearts that are not stony and difficult, Lord, but are open and receptive. And as we open your word, Lord, we pray that we would do it with joy and that we'd be ready to respond to whatever you have to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 139. And it's a beautiful psalm, guys, where David declares in this first stanza that God knows us. Take a look at uh, verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me, uh, you, and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in. Behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And so this is a, a classic passage, guys, on, the, on God's omniscience. That he knows everything without effort and without discovery. He doesn't work hard to see everything. He sees it all. And he never really actually discovers or is surprised by anything. He's always known all things. Isn't that amazing? But it's more than just a a psalm about his general omniscience. David isn't focused just on how God knows everything exhaustively, like he's a perfect Wikipedia. Like, that's not what David's saying. David here is focusing on that he knows everything about you, and he knows everything about me. It's it's super personal, guys. And you can see that in verse 1. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I lie down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You see how personal this is. Uh, Before words on my tongue, you know it. You hem me in. You lay your hand upon me. And so God, it isn't just that God knows everything he does, but he knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He searches you. The psalm says. He knows you. He discerns you. Uh, The wording in here, the Hebrew, is this idea of he sifts you. Like winnowing, when you would take some grain and you would separate the wheat from the chaff, and there was a sifting process. He does that with us. He digs through us and he sifts us. He knows everything that's in there. He knows how to sort out everything that he sees. He he knows all of our actions. Verse 2, it says he knows they're sitting down and are rising up. The Lord knows all of our actions, whether they're our public out on the town actions or they're our private sitting down personal actions. He knows all our words. Verse 4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. You know, how well do you have to know somebody? Some of you know people, maybe your spouse. And whenever they say something, there's nothing surprising coming from them. It's the same stuff. You've heard it before. You're not surprised. But every once in a while, even a person you know really well, they'll say something. You say, what are you talking about? You know, the Lord never has that moment with us. He's never surprised by anything we say. And it's not because he's just watched us for a long time and he kind of has a good sense of what we are like. And it's not because he's a really good guesser, right? It's because, thirdly, he knows our thoughts. Verse 2 says, you discern my thoughts from afar. And that word afar can either mean by distance or by time, but either way, he knows our thoughts. He knows what we're going to say ahead of time because he gets us. 
How, how wonderful it is to have somebody in your life that really gets you. You know, you go like, you really understand me. Guys, the Lord gets us. The Lord gets us more than we get ourselves. Some people go to counseling for decades to try and figure out why they do what they do. But the Lord knows us now. He knows everything about us. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, said, I'm a riddle even to myself, right? We're a riddle to ourselves. And sometimes as we get older, we start to understand a little bit more of why we do what we do. But the Lord knows us completely now. All of our motivations, good or bad, all the real reasons why we do things or believe things, all of our prejudices, all of our deceptions, both of other people and of ourselves. A lot of the deceptions we have are about ourselves. We tell ourselves all kinds of stories about what we're about and what we're doing. He, He knows all of this without effort or without surprise, without misinterpretation. Let me ask you this, guys. How do you feel about that? It's a good question, right? How do you feel about that? And please, be honest about this. How do you feel about it? Well, it depends. It depends on how you feel about the Lord, right? Whether that's good news or bad news. David even seems a little ambivalent about this at this point. Look at verse 7. He says, where can I flee? <laughs> right? Look at verse 7. Where, can I, where shall I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, you are there. And if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost part of the sea, even there your hand is upon me. Your right hand shall hold me. If if I say, surely darkness will cover me, and and the light around me will be night, even in the darkness. It's not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. The stanza starts with, if I was going to run from you, Lord, where would the best place be to hide? I'm not saying I'm going to, but if I was, where could I hide from you? And you see the answer here. Well, it's not by going up or down. You know, verse 8 says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Now, the first option seems like a mistake right off the bat. I mean, you're not going to, like, go right to his house to avoid him, right? So go to heaven, you're there. But then what about dying? What if I were to die and make my bed in the the grave? Nope, he's there too. We can't escape vertically. What about horizontally? Well, not by going east or west either. Look at verse 9. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. The phrase wings of the morning, it's pretty cool. What that means is, it means when when the dawn light first appears and those rays shoot out, those are the wings of the morning. So what he's saying is he's saying, if I were to head east, because that's where the dawn occurs, right? Uh, Those rays of the morning, if I were to head east, you'd be there. And then, and then he says, um, by contrast, the sea, okay? And King David, he's in Israel. The sea is which direction? It's west, right? Just like it is for us. And he says, if I were to go west, if I were to flee onto the sea, maybe that would work. How'd that work for Jonah? Didn't work well, right? Didn't work well. He goes, you'd be there too. And what's really cool, notice that David isn't saying you'd follow me all these places, right? That's not what it says. It doesn't say if I go there, you'd track me down. He says, you're already there. God's already there. So you show up and he's like, hey, (laughs) he's already there. The Lord's not hindered from finding us or seeing us geographically. And verse 11 through 12 says he's not hindered by a lack of lighting either. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day. 
for darkness is his light to you. There's a human tendency, right, to try to hide our sins and practice them in dark. I mean, it's, it's why you need lots of cops on duty at night, right? Is because that's a time when, when crimes are practiced, right? And young kids even have this sense of, like, if they're in the dark, they can't be seen. You know, you remember as a kid, you remember being scared and you pulled the blankets over you. Like, that is not a very secure way to hide from anything, right? But there was this idea, if I cover my eyes, then, then no, no one can see me. The monster can't see me. Um, a lot of you, your kids probably at one point did this and thought they were hiding. Like, if I can't see you, you can't see me kind of a deal, right? And, and we do the same thing, too, when we think that darkness is going to hide our sin. Verse 12 says that the night is as bright as day to him. He's not affected by how much light there is. He has perfect night vision. The Lord is everywhere. He always sees us. He sees everything. He's always with us. And so let me ask you again, how do you feel about that? You know, how, how do you feel about the fact that the Lord sees and knows everything you do, say and think, and that you can never escape his presence? Is that good news to you? Is that good news to your soul? Well, it depends, right? It depends on how you feel about him, right? You guys remember the old song by the police, Every Breath You Take? Remember that song? So there's a line, the police say, I'll be watching you. Every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Okay, is that a romantic song, or is that time for a restraining order? It depends on how you feel about him, right? If you like him, it's romantic. It's kind of. If you don't like him, it's stalkerish, right? It's time for a restraining order. It's the same thing here. This psalm, guys, is a great diagnostic test for your heart. You read Psalm 139, and you say to yourself, are these truths sweet to me? Or are they smothering? <laughs> is, are these truths good news to my soul or bad news? And the answer says a lot about our own hearts, right? And there's a sense of drama, guys. Even in this psalm, David's not sure if he likes it. And you can see that in uh, his ambivalence about this. In verse 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. That can either be taken positively or negatively. Hemmed in means to surround, to kind of capture, to... Um, to uh, suppress, restrict. You can have a sense of trapping. You know, an army might hem another army in in a valley, right? There's a mixture of feeling here. David's not so sure if he likes this at this point in the psalm. Um, even this part about where can I flee from your presence, that can be taken two ways. He could be like theoretically or, you know, I'd kind of like to hide from this, right? And, and guys, when our hearts are hardened towards the Lord, we can feel trapped. You know, we can feel hemmed in in the sense of feeling trapped by his constant presence and his perfect knowledge. And if there's a sin that we want to hide, we can come to hate the fact that God can see all of our actions and our thoughts and, and read our minds and knows our words and can even like look into our pockets without effort. It can start to feel, can it, like a surveillance state, right? Like, like, like North Korea or something where the authorities are always watching, right? You can feel that way about the Lord when you read this psalm. Um, Job, even righteous Job in his frustration said this. He said, how long, he said this to the Lord, how long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone to swallow my own spit? He was frustrated and he said, how long are you going to stare at me? How long are you going to know me? How long are you going to examine me? When are you going to look away? I can't take it anymore, right? And this drama, this ambivalence that David has, it's really cool though. It gets resolved at the end. Take a look at verse 23. 
By the end, he says this, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. It's, it's the same thing, but it's a request, right? This ambivalence, it turns into an invitation. Search me, O God, and know my, my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts. He, he invites it by the end. And so the question might be, why? Why did David go from kind of uncertainty about whether he wanted God watching him and knowing him to, at the end, a full-on invitation? Search me and know me. You know, what makes him, a sinner, be willing and, and even invite a holy God to search and know him? And, and the answer is, is that what David had is David had the covenant love of God. This word LORD in here, uh, it's in all caps. The word there, uh, when it's all caps like that, is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's covenant name. This is the name that people who know the Lord use when they're in covenant with him. You might ask, well, what's a covenant? A covenant, guys, is a legally binding promise. The, the most common covenant that we know about is what? That we deal with. Marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant. Uh, it's a, and that's the most familiar covenant that we have. David stopped running from God because he knew that God loved him with an unbreakable covenant love. That God had promised him, and he promises us as people, he will never leave us or forsake us. He will never leave us or forsake us no matter what sin comes to light. No matter what his all-seeing eye sees, he will never leave us or forsake us. No matter what sin comes to light, he's not going anywhere. He's, he's a, a perfect husband to his people that no matter what happens, he's not going anywhere. And, um, and you might ask yourself, how can a holy God promise to love sinful people that way no matter what? It's a pretty dangerous promise to make, right, to people to say, hey, I will love you no matter what. You trust in me and I will love you no matter what. How could he make that promise? Well, he made that promise because Yahweh himself solved our sin problem, right? So Yahweh himself became a man. He became Jesus of Nazareth, which is crazy, by the way, because God is everywhere, right? He's the God that's omnipresent. He took on an address. He became Jesus of Nazareth, right? He's the one who dwells everywhere. And he, he, he took up residence in a little town of Nazareth. He became a man, and he lived this life, this perfect life, a life of absolutely nothing to hide, a life that could be scanned by God and come up clean every time. And he lived this perfect life of love and wisdom, and his actions were perfect, his words were perfect, and those things didn't cover up a dark heart. His heart was perfect, too. Everything he thought or did was perfect. And then on the cross, Jesus Christ was searched by the all-seeing eye of God's justice. You know, when Jesus hung there on the cross, God's perfect knowledge, it's in Psalm 139, was used to scan Jesus for sin. And do you know what was found? Our sin. Our sin was found upon him. It was our sin that was found upon him and seen as if it was his. You know, it's as if, it's as if he was searched down by, by God's um, holy judgment. He, he was patted down. And there was evidence against us found in his pockets. And he was convicted for it. And he took the full rap for that, guys. Jesus became our willing scapegoat to let us free. We are all Barabbas. Remember the story of Jesus and um, they were, Pilate said, hey, you know, um, why don't you have Jesus go free and, and, or, or do you want Barabbas? Which one do you want to go free? You want Barabbas to go free or Jesus? Remember what the crowd yelled out? Crucify Jesus, right? Let Barabbas go. We're Barabbas. We're the ones that deserve the death penalty. We're the ones that deserve the crucifixion. We're the ones that deserved hell. And we got let loose and he took our punishment. And so now Jehovah... Uh, Yahweh 
invites us, having removed that barrier, invites us into this covenant relationship, this promise, like marriage. And the deal is, if you will trust in him and turn from your sin, the Lord promises he will never hold your sins against you ever. Isn't that amazing? If you'll trust in him and turn from your sin, he will never use your sin against you ever. He will never hold it against you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never someday find some new sin or fault that will make him bail on you or divorce you. He can't find something new. Isn't that amazing? He actually can't find a new sin. He's known it all. That's what makes Psalm 139 such good news. Is that he made a deal, right? To love me uh, for eternity and to save me and to give me heaven and give me himself. Fully knowing what he was getting. Right? He knew exactly what he was getting. There's no sin that's going to pop up later or something that I've been hiding that he didn't know about. He knows it all. He knew what he was getting into. And he's also paid for everything he finds. Guys, this is the covenant love of Yahweh, to be fully known and fully loved. And I just want to ask you, have you received this love? Is there any reason that you can't receive that love this morning? What would your reasons be? You know, I think that's a good question to ask. Is there any reason why you couldn't receive that love this morning if you haven't ever known it before? Call on him. Like, we're going to have an extended time of worship, four songs, we have communion and all that. There's a long period of time. Call out to him during that. You know, confess the sin that he already knows about and receive this covenant love. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Tim Keller says, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial, right? You might have people that say, oh, you're so great. Maybe people at work or whatever, like, oh, you're like, so great. I bet you're like the best husband, the best wife, or oh, you're so great. And they don't know you. And you're like, it's nice, but it's superficial, right? He says, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. And then he says, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. (laughs) It's our greatest fear that the people that know us best would not love us, right? And then he says this, but to be fully known and fully loved is what it's like to be loved by God in his covenant love. Have you ever felt that security of knowing that you're loved, even though God knows absolutely everything that you ever said and thought and done that was sinful, and yet he'll never leave you. And if, you, if you're in that place, guys, then you're not afraid of Psalm 139. It's good news. It's good news if you have the covenant love of Jesus, because it's saying that he will always be with you. He will always care for you. He will always help you, because he knows exactly how to help you, because he sees the inside of you. Um, and David came to love it. He loves this, and you'll love it too if you have that covenant love. Another thing that this will do for you, another way that it'll change you, the rest of Psalm 39 I want to show you, is it will give you wonder, loyalty, and love for the Lord. So we're going to do those real quick. It'll give you um, wonder, loyalty, and love for the Lord. This third stanza, check it out in verse 13. It shows, David shows how deeply personal God's knowledge of us is and his presence is because he was with us in a place no one else was with us. In the womb, unless you're a twin, right? And then you had some company in there. But um, this is what he says, verse 13. For you know my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When it was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none. The way that the Lord had formed the first human being, uh, you know, remember he formed him out of the dust of the ground before there was anyone else, is really the same way he formed you, in secret and in person, 
You know, he didn't form you from dust to the ground, but he did it in secret, and he did it in person. First, he did it in secret. It says here that you were woven in the <clears throat> depths of the earth. Okay, this isn't like an alternate version of where babies come from, okay? This is, because he already said it was the womb. It's not like your kids go like, where do babies come from? The ground, son, you know? Like, no. What he's saying by depths of the earth is he's saying that it's a place of seclusion. It's a place of concealment. It was a place that no one else was. Also, God formed you with personal care. We see that in the psalm. You were not made in an automated factory. You were made on a weaver's loom. There's this imagery of like knitting and weaving. And what it's saying is, is that you were made by hand with intense concentration and care. Using a complex pattern of colors, intricately made, like somebody who would weave. You're, you're making a complex pattern, maybe a tapestry or something. You can't like fall asleep at the wheel here. You're going to mess something up and it's very hard to go back and fix that, right? Same way with us. Is he, he had intense care, complex patterns, full thought on us as he was making us. King David wrote this 3,000 years ago, and we know so much more now about how the Lord wove us together, weaves us, woven uh, together. But it's no less amazing, is it? No less amazing. One of my favorite classes I took in undergrad was embryology, and it was super hard class, but it was amazing. I mean, just think about it. When that egg was fertilized that made you, there were actually 200 million other contenders of sperm that lost. You realize that? There were over 200 million other genetic possibilities that could have happened that day. There were over 200 million other ways for you not to exist. Isn't that amazing? Those wouldn't have been you. You beat 1 to 200 million odds just to exist. Congratulations. Like, that's amazing. That deserves a trophy, you know? We give trophies for everything else. But um, once that egg was fertilized, guys, that genetic blueprint was, was set, right? And then the weaving began. And the weaving is amazing, you know? That first cell that was fertilized divides into two, then four, then eight, then 16. It becomes this ball of cells, right? And those cells in the beginning, it's pretty cool. They can be anything they want. Or not they want, they don't want anything, but they can be anything. You take one of those cells, you put it in a liver, it will decide to be a liver cell. You put it in a brain, it will be a, a neuron. It, it will form to whatever it's, so it's this ball of cells and they can be anything. And then eventually they sort out into three major types of cells. There's, you know, mesoderm and ectoderm and endoderm and those all have different parts of the body they're going to create. And then it's amazing, there's this complex system of gene expression and chemical signaling and tissue folding that causes you to be weaved together in secret. The Lord does that. It's an amazing thing. And there's cool things, like when that, when that first ball of cells that's going to become you, it kind of flattens down, and then it gets like a groove down it, and then two sides of the tissue, they fold up and they make a little tube. That's going to be your spinal canal. It's called the neural tube. And at one end of it, it kind of bulges up. That's going to be your brain someday. You know, and, and the heart is an amazing thing, too. It's, it, it starts with two, like, pulsating blood vessels right next to each other. They kind of fuse, and then they knot up and make four chambers. It's amazing. You have a beating heart within just a couple of weeks, maybe four weeks, something like that. It's amazing. It's amazing, guys, even down to the cells that die. Huge process of him weaving you is causing certain cells to die. You know, there's certain areas. Um, for example, your eye. Your eye was covered in skin all the way across with no eye slit, no opening. And there's a programmed cell death in a line where the cells died in a line so that, that those eyelids could open for the first time for you to take a look around. Like that's all God weaving you in the womb. It's amazing. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearful because it's a cause of astonishment. It's, it's, so many things could go wrong, right? And it's wonderful because it's a miracle. It's something only God can do. And it all happened in the Lord's secret lab where it was just you and him. 
And while he was planning this, he wasn't just planning your body, right? He was planning your mind. Um, he was planning your personality, the kind of soul you would have. And people are super interesting in the types of different souls and minds that they have. Now, of course, um, you and I and every part of us, we've been parasitized by sin. That Sin has kind of taken over every area of our lives. But guys, it's the corruption of a beautiful creation. It's sad because it's such an amazing creation that's been dragged down by sin. One day, that won't be there anymore in us. But it's a beautiful design. And not only was the Lord designing your, your body and your mind and your soul, he was also crafting your whole life. Look at verse 16. It says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So as he's weaving you, he's thinking of all the joys and the pains and accomplishments that you would have, even down to the fact that he was going to bring you here on this morning to this place to hear from this passage about the love of Jesus. The Lord did that. He planned that even while he was weaving you in, in your mother's womb. And he planned it from, from your birth all the way to your death. In verse 18, when it says, when I awake, very likely he's talking about resurrection. This is womb to tomb to resurrection, his plan for you. Guys, you are not an accident. You are not a number. You have not been mass-produced. You're not the result of blind automation. You are the Lord's creation. And the value God places on you is enormous, even as an embryo. He's really wound up about an embryo, right? His intricate attention, all the thoughts he's had for you. He says that those thoughts that the Lord has had for him and has had for you are innumerable. Verse 18 says that they're more than the sands of the sea. And so you might ask yourself, why does the Lord have this obsession with you? Why is he so obsessed with an embryo? You know, it's because he's not just making a creature for his creation. He was fashioning for himself a child for himself, a child that one he would adopt. Um, he was fashioning for himself a covenant friend. He's making himself a covenant friend. He's making himself his beloved. The Lord's covenant love creates wonder, doesn't it? Secondly, the Lord's covenant love creates fierce loyalty. Okay, be ready for a change here. Even when Jim read it, you, you guys noticed this, this switch, quick change. So you got this verse, could go on a coffee mug, could go on a calendar. It's very sentimental. It's a happy verse. Not sentimental. It's, it's beautiful. It's emotional. It's um, comforting. And then verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. You think, well, that escalated quickly. And then it goes back to another verse that says, search me and know me, O God. You know, like the, the, the nice music returns. What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you, this sudden shift was something that really bothered me when I first read it, you know? Um, but now I love it, and I'll show you why. Notice what's going on here, guys. Notice that David is not responding to personal attacks in this passage, right? He's not responding to personal attacks. He's responding to the way God's been attacked. Look at it. He says, they speak evil against you, Lord. Your enemies take your name in vain. They hate you, Lord. Those who rise up against you. David is not here concerned with self-defense. David is fiercely loyal to the Lord. This is David's heart to defend the one he loves most, the Lord. And so his, God's enemies are his enemies. And guys, this, kind of, this is totally appropriate. This kind of fierce loyalty is the kind of loyalty we all have when we've been loved deeply by someone and when we love them back, right? Let me ask you this question. How do you respond when somebody attacks your best friend? How do you respond when somebody attacks your spouse? 
how do you respond when somebody attacks your kids? How do you respond when somebody attacks your mama? (laughs) Fiercely, right? Just like this. This is an entirely natural and normal response, guys. Right? That's what we have here. God's love for David's made him loyal to God, right? John Calvin said, even a dog knows how to bark when its master is attacked, right? He, he, he's not neutral. We're not neutral when the Lord's attacked, are we? Now, that doesn't make us go on some sort of holy war against the infidels or something like that. The Lord Jesus has taught us how to pursue his enemies with love and with a word of the gospel. But guys, we're not coldly neutral when the Lord's attacked. I think sometimes we are, and it's a bad sign in our hearts when we don't care if the Lord's attacked. We're not coldly neutral. When people attack him, we feel it. You know, we feel like, how can they treat my Lord like that? You know, we feel like, have they no gratitude? How can they reject the one that knit them together in their mother's womb? How can they, how can they uh, be so hostile to the one who's fed and sustained them and given them everything they need? You know, how could they hate the one whose love is so pure and so costly? I mean, the Lord's the best of all beings. How could you hate him? How could you do this to him, right? But what's really cool in this next verse, in verse 23, is that even as David has this outrage about the sin he sees in other people, he turns it on himself, right? He turns it on himself because he remembers that his own, his own sins against the Lord. David's fierce loyalty turns against the sin in his own heart. So lastly, the Lord uh, love makes us love him back. Take a look at this. this. That whole sense of drama, right, about that ambivalence about God's knowledge and presence turns into this invitation. He says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, the sins of others made David examine his own heart. Isn't that great? And that's the way we should do it too. I mean, every bit of outrage we have about somebody else out there doing this should cause us to look at our own hearts, right? should cause us to look at our own hearts. Um, Every time we see sin in others, it should cause us to examine ourselves for that same sin. All of our outrage, guys, should be a boomerang that comes back to self-examination. You know, I think that's one thing, a real problem in our Christian culture in this country is, and especially with social media and stuff like that, we're great at outrage. We're great at like, look at what they're doing, look what they're... We're not so great at (laughs) self-examination. David's outrage led him to self-examination. It was a boomerang that came back to him. Because, guys, Jesus' worst traitors have never been those out there. They've always been his best friends. Jesus' worst traitors are in my heart, not out there. Because he's given me so much. And so the way that the Lord has loved us makes us want to love him back. And the way we love him back is by keeping his law. And his law isn't a burden to us. It's our delight because we love him. Take a look at verse 24. He says, See if there is any grievous way in me. He's saying, he's saying, Lord, show me where there's anything that grieves you in my heart. Because I love you. I don't want to grieve you. Isn't that awesome? Is that the way you feel? He's like, show me if there's anything in here that grieves you. I do not want to grieve you. I love you. Uh, it's our delight to do that. And he says, search me and know me. He's asking the Lord to examine his heart. Guys, realize you are not a fit examiner of your own heart. I think a lot of times we, we think we are. We think we can examine our own hearts and stuff. There's two ways that can go wrong. One is, is you believe all your deceptions. <laughs> you know, you, all your justifications, all those. You know, I know that's not biblical, but, you know, we believe all those, you know, because we said them. So we're like, oh, he sounds like, or she sounds pretty good, you know, just like me. <laughs> you know, and you want to believe them, right? And so there's one way is we believe our deceptions. The other way, though, guys, and I think this is just as common with Christians, is we can fall victim to morbid introspection. 
especially some of you people. Some of you people that are very serious about the Lord, have great soft hearts for the Lord. You can be in a state of morbid introspection where you're constantly just grinding over the own sin in your heart and finding sins where they're not really there, you know, um, just overdoing it, right? What's the solution? Solution is let's have him examine our hearts. Okay, that's what this verse is about. Pray this verse, you know. The solution is, you examine my heart and you show me what's in there and then beautifully lead me in the way everlasting because anything that the Lord finds in our hearts and reveals to us, he's not only forgiven it, he wants to lead us into freedom. He wants to lead us into freedom. And so pray this psalm. Pray especially these last two verses. This is a great thing to pray. Ask him to scan you. You know, when you say, search me and know me, you're asking for a scan of your, of your heart and your soul and your mind. You're asking for a scan from a surgeon that's more than willing and more than able to remove any tumor of sin he finds in there. It's all removable, right? And so we ask him, search me and show me and lead me in the way everlasting. And he'll do that. He'll do it more and more in this life. And then one day we're going to awake in the world to come and live with perfect healing, aren't we? Perfect healing. We're going to have actions and words and even our very thoughts and desires are going to be perfectly aligned with him. We're going to enjoy the presence of God with our eyes. This psalm says about how he's everywhere. We don't see him. We believe it by faith, right? But then we'll believe it because we'll see him as he is and he'll make us like him. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.